this afternoon's talk, I'm going to ask you to do something that may sound a little silly. And I want to uh, invite you to give yourself full permission. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to breathe in the whole retreat. Take an in-breath. And then with the out-breath, breathe out the whole retreat, but maybe make a sound. Just, Okay? Let's try that one more time. Breathe in the whole retreat. And then breathe it all out. Wonderful. So notice what it's like just to make a sound and to kind of let it all go. Right? We can have this sense of there's something that we need to do or something that we're doing. And actually, it's just a series of moments. That's really what this is. So this is a new moment. And in this moment, what uh, I'm going to offer is an exploration of another factor of mind. So last, um, or yesterday rather, you heard from Nikki uh, when she was talking about Vitaka and Vichara. And tonight, or this afternoon rather, I'll be talking about piti, which is this word that gets translated in very different ways. Um, Sometimes you'll see it as rapture, or you'll see it as bliss, or you might see it as um, a kind of um, sustaining joy or pleasure that can show up in the practice. And the part that I want to um, really emphasize is um, what is the texture or the felt sense of this factor of mind that can be so supportive to practice. And I'm actually also going to broaden this classical definition a little bit to speak about it from the perspective of well-being or this perspective of kind of nourishing. So it's a little bit broader definition than the classical jhanic factor, which is called piti. So how does this show up? Well, it can show up physically, it can show up mentally. Um, It sometimes, it can be a felt sense of energy, or there can be a sense of light. Sometimes you can get um, in the meditation itself, there might be just this perception of light. It's almost as though somebody clicked on the light of the mind and it became a little bit brighter. At other times, you might feel kind of a buzzing. It can be just the hum of the mind or the body. And you can sense that, this kind of pleasant buzz. Or sometimes, as in my own experience, I like to describe it as like a carbonated beverage. You take it off and it goes, and just kind of bubbles over. And it can have this feeling of kind of just fizzing and bubbling. So what's its function? Well, one of its function is, is actually to keep the mind involved. So if you think about vitaka as kind of this uh, orienting or the placing or that kind of initial contact that Nikki so beautifully talked about, and vichara as the kind of sustaining quality, well, the piti is, it's like this uh, energy source that keeps the mind going, but it can actually get into its own uh, renewable uh, resource so that there's an effortlessness that can start to show up in this phase of the practice. So don't worry if this isn't part of your experience. I'm also going to talk about how it is part of your experience. You just may not know it. So hang hang with me for a little bit. 
And the very first thing that um, I wanted to um, share with you is uh, a couple of poems. There's, I have a lot of different things up here. They're just kind of accessories. We're going to see where it all goes. But one of the things that um, I'm really intending tonight is that this be a talk that was really inspiring and encouraging. And so I'm going to use a lot of story and poetry. And it's a way of getting at experience that uh, often, sometimes when you just talk about it, it doesn't quite have the same flavor. There's something about poetry and story that can get more to the pith of it. And so I'm going to be using a lot of that this evening. The first um, piece that I wanted to read is an excerpt called The Nature of Nature by Pauline Hamblin. Spring usually brings to us a time of flowers anew, but instead, last year, snow a foot or two. Birds failed to sing, for they were just too cold. Wintertime was hanging on. This is getting old. Nature has a mind of its own. Seasons coming as they may, bringing various weather to us. Calendars don't really have a say. So that's the first piece. This is a little bit more of a shorter piece in the Zen tradition. But see if you can hear again, it's pointing at something. Now that my house is burned down, I have a much better view of the moon. <laughs> <laughs> and from where I come from, we have some uh, local sayings. So in Minnesota, we have these little quips. And again, you can, I'll just offer you a few of them so you can get the flavor of what this is pointing at. So the first one is, in Minnesota, we say there are only two seasons. There's winter and there's road construction. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> two seasons, right? And we also are fond of saying that the state bird is the mosquito, <laughs> right? So these are all just little ways of kind of bringing in a, a different perspective, right? And as hopefully you're sensing, even just with the laughter or the levity, you can feel that sense of, ah, just like when we breathed out the whole retreat, there's a sense of, ah, there's nothing I have to do. It can bring in this quality that's more energizing to the mind. So this is very important because it means then that happiness is a function not of what, but of how you are relating to whatever is unfolding in your experience and how you then choose to respond. So it's not the what, but the how. So this is very important and I'm gonna draw this theme out a little bit. And so I wanna give you a very uh, close to home example. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you were describing what you were doing here to a friend who would never <laughs> in their wildest dreams end up at a place like this. And so this is how it might go. This is how, in my mind anyways, it kind of went. And I've, I've had these situations where I've described what, you know, what, what we're doing here. So you might begin with the, the where and the who. So you'd say, well, I'm at this beautiful center. It's just outside of Santa Cruz. And, you know, there are about 40 people here. And so your friend might go, oh, sounds pretty good. Outside of Santa Cruz, that's nice weather, 40 people. Yeah, that sounds like, you know, it's a good group probably some interesting people there to connect with. And then they say, well, what exactly were you doing while you were there? And he said, well, this, you know, this is kind of interesting. Well, there were 40 of us all hanging out. And um, well, first we agreed to hand in our cell phones 
and we agreed to not use any technology, to not look at the news. Um, we agreed not to talk to each other. We just said, yeah, we're, we're going to stay in silence the whole time. Oh, we also agreed not to make eye contact. And um, we also kind of agreed to keep to ourselves, you know, just really kind of staying internal. And, oh, and by the way, we agreed to do chores twice a day. That's something we agreed to do. And for the rest of the time, we pretty much just sat and walked, sat and walked, and then there was a little bit of eating and then some sitting and walking. And, you know, occasionally somebody would get up and say a few things, but mostly it was just silent and we were just kind of in this space. Oh, and by the way, um, we paid to be here, right? So this is, um, it's kind of, we can think about this, right? It's, it's all a function of, it sounds as though it's this kind of odd container, this odd environment. And yet, what I would suspect, I'm not sure, but I would guess, that you have started to sense into some of the joy of seclusion. What is it like when we actually take a break from the busyness, from the agitation of the mind? We choose to actually be in the present moment in this very sensitive way. And this is something that the Buddha talked about often, the joy of seclusion. There's another wonderful um, quote that Matthew Ricard sometimes likes uh, to use. I love this quote. He says, you can think about it this way. Renunciation, if you talk about it to most people, it's like picking up a stick and hitting the nostril of a pig. The pig doesn't like it very much. It kind of goes, you know, it gets hit with the stick of kind of renunciation. It doesn't seem to make sense. It goes against everything that we think that if it's out there somehow, if I just string together all of these pleasant moments, if I string together, oh, the perfect sitting and just the perfect everything, then that will be happiness. But actually, there's an immediate joy that we can feel that's always here. And this is the joy of seclusion. So the moment that I, this is, this is pretty wild. Watch what happens. The moment I stop talking, where else can that happen? So rare, so precious, right? The silence, it's so immediate, so palpable, and it's so beautiful. So this is one flavor of how we can start to get at this quality that I'm talking about of well-being, this quality of um, pity. So there's another uh, piece that I kind of want to um, spend a bit of time with, which is <clears throat> this how are we relating to what's showing up. So this is the aspect of both mindfulness and concentration. This is why the two of them work together. So we could feel the settledness or the gatheredness, which you all are starting to experience. We know because we hear it in the interviews. There's this sense of you're settling in to the container, to the retreat, but it's not always easy, right? So last night, Nikki talked about the hindrances. And the hindrances... Um, one of the ways, and actually Gil reminded both Nikki and myself last night, one of the ways it can be translated is a covering up. So it's the hindrances are covering something up. They're obscuring. And what we've been inviting this whole time is that if you stay with what is here, with whatever the experience is, in a gentle way, a very gentle way, and you let it unfold, then you'll start to understand what's underneath 
what is it that the hindrances are covering up? And perhaps most importantly, you will start to notice when the hindrances aren't there. And there are many times throughout the day when the hindrances aren't there. So do you notice that? Do you actually take a moment and say, oh wow, look at this. There's not sleepiness. There's not doubt. There's just contentment. Or maybe it's just blankness, but it's blankness without the hindrances. What a beautiful thing. So we can see again the immediacy of what is right here. There's a couple other um, stories that um, I think really point to this. And so <clears throat> you can think about it as um, it's almost like the hindrances are the fertilizer. So you have to spend some time with them and it's like you're tilling the soil or you're, you're preparing the fertilizer for the ground so that the nutrients that are actually in the hindrances allow something else to grow and to come forth. Um, some of you may know Ajahn Brahm. Uh, he's a wonderful uh, teacher and practitioner. Uh, he's a monastic in Australia. And he wrote a wonderful book called Who Ordered This Truckload of Dung? And in this, he has a story where he talks about this. And so I'll read you an excerpt. He's talking about, um, in this particular story, some of the um, most difficult moments where we really are meeting something completely unexpected, but it applies to the hindrances, just as he's describing this. So this is what he has to say. When a truckload of dung is dumped in front of our house. We heave a sigh and then get down to work. Out comes the wheelbarrow, the fork, and the spade. We fork the dung into the barrow, wheel it around the back of the house, and dig it into the garden. So can you hear a little bit of this vichara, vitaka? We kind of are meeting, we're there, we're sustaining with it. There's a little bit of effort that's involved. So we dig it into the garden. This is tiring and difficult work, but we know there's no other useful option. But the morning does come when we see that the dung in front of our house is all gone. Furthermore, a miracle has happened in another part of our house. The flowers in our garden are bursting out in a richness of color all over the place. So he ends, the next time something like this happens, maybe, Maybe you can say, whoopee, more fertilizer for my garden, <laughs> right? So again, it's the way that we are starting to orient. How are we starting to hold and to experience this? Downstairs, actually just this morning, I saw this as I was um, ringing the bell for uh, breakfast. Wonderful quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. Very short, same idea. It basically said, no mud, no lotus, right? So this is why the work of what you're doing, of actually being with the experience moment to moment, when it's difficult, is actually the fertilizer that allows things to grow. It's the, it's the soil from which wisdom grows, from which compassion grows, from which kindness, all these beautiful qualities of heart and mind from which it grows. <clears throat> so there's another thing that I want to highlight for you, which is, there's so much in this environment that we can appreciate. And that appreciation is actually the doorway to gladness 
and to this sense of piti, this sense of delight or joy or bliss. So what are some of the things that we can start to appreciate? Well, for example, we have amazing delicious food that is delivered and offered in such a beautiful way. And it's nourishing food. It's this wonderful food that's been prepared with mindfulness and kindness, real attention. And then we also have, as I mentioned earlier, this quiet environment, right? The stillness of this. We also have the real power of community, of all of us sharing this intention to be mindful, to be present. What a beautiful and rare thing. So it's immediate, it's right here, but often missed because the mind can get caught in tilling or working with the fertilizer, working with the hindrances, and we smell the fertilizer and we go, ooh, I don't know, this is, but we miss what's actually right here in the moment. The other thing is I I know, because I've seen you, have that warm cup of coffee in the morning or that cup of tea. And when you have that, you can feel the warmth of it and the way that it suffuses the body. There's just a way in which you can feel as though it's the warmth and the real um, nourishment as that you start to be with that cup of tea or with that cup of coffee in the morning, in the quiet, in the stillness, in the presence of mind that you all have been cultivating. So why is this so important? Well, as I mentioned, it's the doorway. So the Buddha had several things to say about this. And so I'll read you some of what the Buddha said around this connection between appreciation, gladness, and this joy leading to concentration. So this is what the Buddha said. Concentration has a proximate cause. Happiness. Happiness has a proximate cause. Tranquility. Tranquility has approximate cause, rapture, that's piti. Rapture has approximate cause, gladness. And if I were to append something to this, I would say gladness has approximate cause, it's appreciation. So here's another quote from the Buddha. And notice again the highlighting of when the five hindrances are absent and there are times even if you have a multiple hindrance attack, there are times when the hindrances aren't there during the day. So don't miss those moments, even if they're just brief. When the five hindrances are absent within oneself, gladness arises. And being glad, piti or rapture arises. Because of piti, one's body becomes tranquil. With, one, with one's body tranquilized, one feels happiness, sukha. And with happiness, one's mind becomes concentrated. So there's a very direct link to this, which is why I keep pointing to this. Don't miss all of what's already here. So I'll give you another um, way of thinking about this. uh, This image of the redwood tree has been invoked several times. And so you can think about it as though so far we're in day three of the retreat. We're kind of in the heart of it. So we've all been diligently with our practice, with our experience. We've been tilling the soil, right? We've been working perhaps with some of the dung, some of the fertilizer, and really at times it's not always so easy. But then what happens is from that work, that little sprout of a sapling starts to emerge. 
and a sapling is kind of a, it's a funny word because it refers to a young tree with a slender trunk. So it's this kind of just emerging tree. It's a very young and a little bit tentative still. And so that's this point in our practice where we're just starting to notice how to hold and to be with this experience, but with a little bit more, mm, I might say, grace, being able to be with it with a certain grace. And what happens, and this is another thing that in Minnesota we often see, there are wild turkeys, as there are, I know, out here in California and other places. All of a sudden, this huge turkey comes barreling down and lands on the branch of a sapling. And what happens? The whole tree starts to bend, right? And so we can get this feeling of like, whoa, we got knocked off course again. The hindrances came back. And this sapling, because it's young, is like almost bending all the way to the ground. But this turkey is there. Well, the turkey's just a visitor. Right? The turkey just all of a sudden came up and gobble, 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 and sitting on the tree, right? And turkeys make noise, and the, but it's just a visitor. And then at some point, the turkey will fly off the tree, and that sapling will come back. Right? So this is our, how we start to work with our practice in um, this kind of um, very mm, delicate and yet rich phase where you're starting to notice what's already here, the appreciation, the gladness. That's the sapling that's starting to come out from all of the work that you've been doing, this wonderful practice of just being here in a gentle way and letting it unfold. So one of the um, stories that um, I was thinking that I also wanted to share with you is this idea of well-being from a concentrated mind. So I wanted to talk about this pity in a more, a broader sense. And it's this well-being that can be born from a mind that begins to be a little bit more still. So with the appreciation and the gladness and that energy, there's also the unifying of the mind, the coming together, the settling, which you all are experiencing, the settling in to experience. So the, the Buddha had these wonderful similes, and there's one um, that speaks to this, I think, in a very powerful way. And the Buddha often used similes of nature, which is why I'm so fond of using these uh, similes of the um, trees and the redwoods and you know the sun and being out in nature because they're so powerful they they evoke something for us so this is what the buddha had to say about this well-being born of concentration and it's actually what comes out of after you have had this sense of the joy of seclusion there's the joy of a gathered and settled mind so the buddha said one makes the rapture and pleasure born of concentration, drench, steep, fill, and pervade the body, so that there's no part of the body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Just as though there was a lake whose waters welled up from below and it had no inflow from the east, the west, the north, or the south, and would not be replenished from time to time by showers of rain. So in essence, he's saying there's just this pool of water, and there's no other rivers or tributaries or anything that are coming in, and there's not even any rain. It's just this lake that's 
all by itself, but it's gathered, it's settled. <clears throat> then imagine that the cool fount of water welling up in the lake would make the cool water drench, steep, fill, and pervade the lake so that there would be no part of the whole lake unpervaded by the cool water. So too, a practitioner makes the rapture and pleasure born of concentration drench, steep, fill, and pervade the body so that there is no part of one's whole body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born of concentration. So this is why uh, so often we're pointing back to can you notice this in the body? Can you actually sense appreciation, gladness, energy, the absence of the hindrances? What is that like? In the and why? Well, it's because as just like the Buddha so beautifully described, it's like if you're steeping tea, right? You put the tea bag in the hot water and then the hot water begins to connect with the tea leaves and then it suffuses the water so that there's no part of the water that's not affected by the tea leaves. And so it becomes flavored or textured with the water. And then it becomes more stable. So it's supportive of the next moment of concentration and mindfulness. It's a wonderful support. And it's very um, uh, easy to miss. So finding any way that you can start to feel into this and just, ah, yes, this is what a moment of relief feels like. Or just like we began, when you let out the whole retreat, oh, it's a little less intense than it was. Even that is a wonderful way of feeling into this. How does it suffuse in the body? <clears throat> so I, um, as a kid, and there were two stories that I thought I would share. I um, spent some time actually um, at my grandmother's house who was, uh, she lived out here in California in a small town called Nevada City. And it's an old gold mining town. And um, her house was this very old uh, Victorian house that uh, at this point is probably over, yeah, it's over 100 years old at this point. And the very first owner of this house was um, the head of the forestry service. And so the, this head of the forestry service uh, was gifted um, some seeds for some redwood trees. And he gave away some of the seeds, but then he decided to plant one seed in the ground outside of the house. And so from that one seed that was planted in the ground, so again, this is metaphor, right, of tilling the ground, making the bed for the seed. He placed the seed in there. And now, 105 years later, there is this massive redwood that sits outside of my grandmother's tree. Uh, house <laughs> sits outside of the house. There's this wonderful tree. And what I used to do as a kid is I would go out to this redwood and the trunk was massive. I mean, I would just, as a kid, I would just kind of be in awe because I couldn't, you know, you couldn't put your hand around the trunk. You would have to kind of circumambulate the trunk to, to see the entirety of it. It was just incredible. And I remember times standing there and just looking up through the branches and seeing this canopy 
and it would just extend out and the branches were huge and you could go all the way up to the very point. And the other thing I would remember is that when I was driving in over the mountains, because you kind of go through the, the mountains, from a long distance, I always knew exactly where my grandmother's house was because there was this point, this point of the tree that was like a little lighthouse in the distance that would say, oh, there's, that's where my grandmother lives. And it was just standing above the trees. And what strikes me so much about this is the first thing is that it's pretty amazing that there is this massive redwood outside of my uh, grandmother's house. The other amazing thing is that it survived. It's, it, it's, a, it's amazing that it was able to survive next to a house. So what did that actually speak to? Well, it speaks to that there is a root system of this massive tree that's tapping into some water that's there, some deep wellspring. So just as like the Buddha is describing this fount of water that suffuses the lake, there was something there for this redwood, for this tree, that it could start to nourish itself. And through the roots and through the nourishment, it started to move into becoming a sapling. And then from a sapling grew into this enormous redwood tree. And what I was struck by was that when I would spend time just sitting in the shade of this giant redwood tree, and my grandmother used to love to have tea. She used to love to sit out by the redwood tree. There was... Uh, kind of the space or the environment around the tree was conducive to quietness, to settledness, to a certain peace of mind. And if you were just in the shade of the tree, you would sense that there was just a real steadiness with these deep roots and a quietness that you could sense and feel. And the tree, as I mentioned earlier with the metaphor, it was very strong in the base, I mean, very solid. But then at the top, as you watched it, it would move with the wind. And so it was just, that for me, it's a beautiful metaphor for the trunk of the tree, as uh, Nikki and, and others and Gil and myself have been talking about, the body. It's like the, can you feel the strength and the stability? And then when you have the unification of the mind, the steadiness of the mind, it's almost, it's like that space around the tree that just evokes quietness. It evokes a certain steadiness or peace or an ease or gentleness. And, you know, it's no mistake that within um, so many of the Buddhist stories, there's all these examples of trees, right? So one of the early stories is that when the Buddha was trying to figure out the way that led to liberation, he recalled a moment sitting under the shade of a tree in this relaxed and gentle way and said that, ah, this is trustworthy. This is the way that is onward leading. And then we also have the story of the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree, right? The story of taking a seat and you'll see often in the discourses sitting at the root of a tree. So there's this powerful quality <coughs> And again, I think as this uh, metaphor, the simile of the tree, it can help us to get a sense of, ah, yes, this is how I can feel the stability in the body, or I can feel that peacefulness. <clears throat> so the last aspect that I wanted to spend a little bit of time um, talking about 
is uh, the singleness of mind. And it's what I was referring to around this um, kind of unity or this integration, this what it feels like when the mind becomes woven together. And this is the second story I was gonna share with you, which is I come from a family of uh, miners. And so as a kid, I used to go um, panning for gold all the time. And I spent a lot of time actually uh, out here in California in the Feather River and even small little creeks with um, my dad and even uh, some of um, uh, my neighbors. And we would pan for gold. And <clears throat> the story that I wanted to share with you about this is uh, how this can be another powerful metaphor, at least it was for me in my own personal experience, which is why I'm offering it as a way of feeling uh, what it is that you're doing when you become um, very gathered in your practice, when you're just present with it. So the way this works with uh, panning for gold is you would have a gold pan and the gold pan has these ridges on it. So there'd be these different ridges on the pan and you'd usually have a spade or a trowel or something that you would use and you would go down to the creek and you'd find some running water and you'd find a spot where there were some crevices where there were, it seemed like there was something that was buried in there, something that um, almost was kind of beckoning you to just explore a little bit. And so you would take your spade or your trowel and you would bring a little bit of this, um, what's sometimes called pay dirt or black dirt out from a crevice or this spot and you'd put it into your pan. And then with a real gentleness and care, with a real ease, you would sit by the side of the river and you would allow the water to gently flow into the pan and you would make these very gentle circular movements. And as the water moved in the pan, it would start to move over all the different layers of the sediment and the rock and everything that was there. And what would happen is that the specific weight of gold is such that it's heavy, so it goes to the bottom of the pan but everything else is actually lighter. So fool's gold, for example, is lighter. Other elements are lighter. And so they start to, as you are gently moving this pan with this care and this gentleness, they start to move up the ridges because they're lighter. And so they kind of move and the water helps to bring them out of the pan. And so you do this and at times you can do this for hours. I mean, just hours, just being very gently with this. And then what slowly starts to emerge, if you know, you're patient, you get this little speck or this little glimmer that shows at the bottom of the pan. And what's the first thing that happens? Right when you see, for me anyways, when I saw that little glimmer, that speck, I, I get a little spark in my eye, a little twinkle, and I go, ah, oh, look at this, amazing. Look at what was in here. I had no idea, but here it is. And there's that moment of connecting with it, and you can feel the joy and the gladness of it. And then what would happen is that you'd continue and you'd see a few more specks of gold that were right there. And so by the end, you'd have this kind of beautiful array of these little flakes of gold in the bottom of your pan. And for me, even though I don't pan for gold in the same way, I still consider myself a gold miner. I'm just, it's inner gold. That's what we're doing in this practice again and again very gently working to find our own inner gold. And we all have it. 
And it's the hindrances and all these other things that come in that just obscure it, that cover it up. But when we're gentle and patient, allowing ourselves the time, then we, it starts to reveal its nature because it is an aspect that is what's underneath. It's like the specific weight of gold. It's something that remains once all the other things begin to shift and change. And this is why the practice of just showing up again and again is the most important part. It's not the what, it's the how. How are you with the experience? Are you able to hold it with this longer view, a sense of patience? Seeing at times the appreciation, feeling the cool water as you're sitting there panning for gold, noticing the sunlight as it hits your face, feeling the miracle of being alive. So you take the appreciation, it's this whole journey, this whole process, it's all part of it. Not one part is left out. So why is this so significant? It's significant because this is where we start to develop the confidence or sometimes the inner assurance of practice. When we see our own inner gold, when we touch it, when we have those moments, then we actually have a sense of ability or of confidence, a knowing that there is gold. And this is so significant because what it means then is that our capacity to meet experience, our capacity to hold becomes so much greater. So a, a dear friend who's also very wise um, recently actually um, told me this, kind of offered me this, and I offer it to you because I found it so meaningful. She said, think about it this way. All the problems and the challenges and the difficulties that we have, and we all have them, when we first start, they're about this big, and then we're holding them. And then as we're with them for some time, patience, kindness, real gentleness, this awareness, they stay the same size, but then we're able to hold them like this. Same problems, but notice the holding and the capacity is so much different. And it's because of these factors of mind, they give us this capacity to meet and to hold. So for me, I often feel this um, when I'm with uh, monastics, and in particular the nuns community. I get a lot of inspiration from the nuns. And if you've spent some time with the nuns, you'll notice that there is a composure. There is this kind of inner assurance. There is a knowing of inner gold. And it seems to just radiate out. And for me, this is why it can be so inspiring. And we all have this. We all have this capacity, but we often don't recognize it. The other um, uh, experience that I've had that was, uh, was really, uh, I felt this kind of, in a, again, in a very embodied or palpable way was I spent um, some time at Plum Village with Thich Nhat Hanh. 
And for those of you that have ever practiced with Thich Nhat Hanh or been in Plum Village, there's, it's as though he's this um, incredible uh, magician that can cast a spell of samadhi, of concentration. Because when he walks, as Nikki said, I think earlier in the instructions, it's as though you're kissing the ground with each step. And there would be periods where you would just walk. And as you walked, you could feel the whole community just settling into this sense of composure, sense of steadiness. And it was this inner peace, this inner gold, this inner confidence or assurance which was so much power, more powerful than anything that could have been said. So being able to just stay in the field of this. And we, as I said, we all have this. And so um, in honor of um, uh, some of the Zen teachings that you've been hearing, Ryokan is, has some wonderful uh, phrases around this. One of my favorites, which I'm sure many of you have heard, is, oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. So again, the sense of capacity, the sense of being able to hold or to meet the experience. And many of you probably have seen the Kuan Yin statues or even Alakateshvara, right, which I was talking to Gil also about this earlier, and um, Alakateshvara is uh, one of those, um, and Kuan Yin too, to some respects, is um, one of those figures that actually um, is not one gender or the other. It's kind of sometimes deliberately this way so that it's not uh, this binary or bifurcation, but actually is... Um, kind of androgynous and so can embody both of these qualities in the spectrum of holding and capacity. And so that some of the stories, the archetypal stories, are that there was um, this wish to be able to hear, to meet, to touch, to listen to the suffering of the world. But at first it was so great that the being shattered and so after shattering into all these pieces, it was only then that they came back together with the thousand, the 10,000 arms, the 10,000 eyes, the 10,000 ears, that that configuration was what allowed for the listening, allowed for the touching, the meeting, and the hearing. And so this is speaking to this capacity or this quality that comes from our practice, from the mindfulness and the concentration. When they are working together, you can develop this inner assurance. It's also an aspect of noble silence. So when we're here, when we all took um, this um, precept and the way that we're holding it here in the retreat is to maintain noble silence. And what does this allow us to do? It's a beautiful gift. 
And the gift of noble silence is that when we are silent and when others are silent, we can start to drop below the narratives, the stories, the ideas about who we think we are. That sense that Gill talked about, that quality of the mind that kind of is just one aspect. It's just a small piece, that self-referential point. And so that when we drop below the narrative, when we drop below what classically is called the verbal formation, so that usually in our everyday world, what we do is we think and then we speak. But here, we're not speaking. So then we see the thoughts, but we don't stop just with the thoughts. We actually drop below the thoughts into our experience, into our body. What's here? Not an idea, but what's actually here? We make contact in a gentle way. Vitaka, vichara. We sense the appreciation, which leads to the gladness, which leads to the piti. And all of these factors work together to support one another. And so this is actually, when you'll um, see references in the discourses to noble silence, that's what's being pointed at. It's the silence that's below all of what is the normal kind of machinations or the activity of the mind. And there's a wonderful poem. Again, I like to use a lot of poetry to point at this. This is um, from Pablo Neruda, and many of you probably know it. It's keeping quiet, but it also speaks to, in some ways, how do we meet the most difficult? So how do we meet things that are personal or even societal tragedies or difficulties? How can we hold that? And why is it that what we're doing here is so important, so transformative? So this is Keeping Quiet by Pablo Neruda. Now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales and the people gathering salt would look at their hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their sisters and brothers in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead 
and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to twelve. You keep quiet, and I will go. Perhaps the earth can teach us, as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. So again, these powerful images of nature. So to end, I just wanted to gently kind of recap, <laughs> very lightly. But it's, in essence, remembering this image of the redwood tree. So at first, we're tilling the soil. We're with what's happening, the difficulty, the hindrances. Sometimes we have to work with the fertilizer, and it's not always so pleasant. But then we plant the seed. And from that seed, the showing up, being here in a gentle way, with this kindness, the sapling starts to grow. And that sapling, even though it's tentative, it's aware, it's appreciative of the life that is budding from it, that came from the tilling of the soil and all the conditions. There's an appreciation of the sunlight, the rain, all of the conditions that are allowing for the growing of the tree. And then the sapling grows up and it becomes the giant redwood tree. And it's nourished in its roots, this deep wellspring that suffuses the trunk of the tree, gives it life and nourishment. And there's the aliveness of the branches as it dances with the wind. It holds the songbirds. It's offering the coolness, the shade, a place of rest and repose, gatheredness and settledness. So it all begins with what's happening. What's happening now? And to remember to notice those moments when there aren't the hindrances, when there is the appreciation, the gladness, the sun, the quiet, this community, the beautiful service that's being offered by all of you, all of your jobs. So I'd like to end with one final poem. And again, it's pointing to this metaphor of the tree. So this is the poem Lost by David Wagner. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes behind you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. 
If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So let's sit for just a few moments. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Thank you for your kind attention. <laughs>